When I use the term social contract, I mean very simply, what do workers, employers, communities, and others expect from work and employment relationships today? You can't make work optional. Um, work has to be an important part of, of how we want our society to operate. There has to be, and I hope, um, some type of compact that comes out, agreement that comes out of this, that has some type of expectation for Amazon if they're sort of to, 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 to get these dollars. It's in part not working because our political system isn't working. Welcome back to Breached, a podcast on the American social contract. I'm Jyoti Jastrasaria. And I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. Thank you to all of our listeners for engaging in this conversation with us over the past few months. If you're just joining us, please take a few minutes to listen to our short trailer introducing Breached to get a better sense of our project. Today, we continue the series with a discussion about employment, which, like safety, health, and education, is a substantive area within the social contract that has never been expressly codified in the U.S. Constitution. And although we're more than halfway through our series, in many ways, this episode brings us back to the very beginning of the process. When we first started thinking about this podcast over a year ago now, we kept coming across the term social contract or compact in the context of work. One of the people who has been a driving force in using that terminology over the years is Tom Koken, a professor at MIT Sloan School of Management. When I use the term social contract, I mean very simply, what do workers, employers, communities, and others expect from work and employment relationships today? What should they put into it and what should they get out of it? The concept of a social contract seems intuitive in the employment context, maybe because there are specific structured relationships at stake in a way that there aren't in so many other areas of life. And even though the Constitution definitely doesn't guarantee everyone the right to a job, the federal government has long played a role in defining that social contract between employees and employers through legislation that regulates the workplace and its context, most notably the National Labor Relations Act, or NLRA. The word relations is literally in the name of the statute, so it explicitly recognizes the give and take between employees and employers in a way that's conducive to a contract. And judges have even referred to labor union contracts as social compacts in case law throughout the latter half of the 20th century. The NLRA was passed in 1935 in order to guarantee basic rights for both employees and employers, to encourage collective bargaining, and to curtail certain harmful labor and management practices. One of its key contributions was setting up a process for employees to organize, both with and without a union. We won't go into the details of the law here, but it's worth pointing a few things out. The NLRA is potentially the most ambitious attempt by the U.S. Congress to rebalance economic power in U.S. society, to deliberately define a social contract that leveled the playing field between employees and employers. That being said, the NLRA is old, it was passed over 80 years ago in the context of the Great Depression, when violent labor disputes were widespread and the economy looked very different than it does today. So it's not that surprising that it doesn't work as well as it used to. Figuring out what's changed about the underlying context seems pretty central to figuring out what a new social contract should look like. So we asked all four of our guests on today's episode how the economy has changed since 1935 and more importantly, over the past few decades. The biggest change in the nature of work over the last three decades is that productivity continued to grow 
and wages flatlined. And so we have this great gap between productivity and wages. And that's really one of the big explanations for why we have so much inequality and in income in society. So that's one big change. But it's also changed in the sense that there are many more varied forms of work. People are working in standard employment relationships, in contracting work, in the gig economy, self-employment, um, more emphasis on entrepreneurship. So there's a much wider variety of work arrangements today than we have seen in the past. That was Tom again, pointing to the gap between productivity and wages as the most salient change in the economy. We also spoke with Oren Cass, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the domestic policy director for Governor Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. He identified a different primary change, competition. From the perspective of, of lower income workers or less skilled workers, I think what's changed primarily is the nature of the competition that they face. In the 1930s, even in the 1950s and 60s, the U.S. economy was, um, generally speaking, insulated from the rest of the world, which meant that if you wanted to make something for a U.S. consumer, you had to use a U.S. worker to make it. If you fast forward to the more recent 30 or 40 year period, that dynamic has changed in all respects um, in terms of the types of economic growth we've seen, it has been, uh, to a large extent, in, in the kinds of goods and services that require less labor and certainly less unskilled labor. Uh, and then on top of that, to the extent that uh, a business might need uh, less skilled labor, it has had the option of uh, using workers from somewhere else who might be available at a, at a much, much lower wage or bringing workers into the country. We received a different answer still from Stephen Pedigo, an assistant professor at the NYU School of Professional Studies. He identified the movement away from the industrial economy as the biggest difference. You know, when you look at the American economy, right, we've, we've moved from this industrial-based economy that many of our parents worked in. I know my parents, my dad, for instance, worked in the industrial-based economy. And from that, we have sort of moved to this knowledge-based industry, right, a knowledge-based economy. Rich Florida calls it the rise of the creative class. Um, you know, 30% of the workforce driving almost 50% uh, of all the wages and income in, in the, across the country. Um, but what's interesting, right, with the decline of the, the industrial-based economy, right, um, industrial-based economy jobs were great jobs for the, for the most part, right? They were hardworking. They were hard jobs. They were manual labor jobs. But a lot of those jobs came with benefits. They came with um, this idea of a living family wage. Um, and now, you know, you have the decline of industrial-based jobs across the states, which was, you know, at, at, one, at the heyday was sort of six and ten jobs, now less than two and ten jobs um, in, across the country. And in some cities, like, for instance, in New York City, there's less than 100,000 manufacturing-based types of jobs. But with the decline of those jobs and the rise of the knowledge-based sector, we've sort of also seen this fast-growing uh, rise of a service-based economy, right? Those are folks that um, – that take care of your parents when they get older, people that maybe take care of your kids, serve you food, walk your dog. So this idea of a service-based industry, and that's about 60 million Americans. And the challenge with those jobs, right, is they don't pay very good. Finally, we asked the same question to Sharon Block, executive director of the Labor and Work-Life Program at Harvard Law School, who also served in the Obama White House and Department of Labor. Like Stephen, she identified the transition from an industrial economy to a service economy as the most notable change. 
She also gave us some helpful examples to understand the difference between the dominant models of the old economy and the new one. Imagine people going to work in a big car factory, right? You all walk through the same door together. The name of the company is above the door. Everybody works for that company. They wear uniforms that say GM or whatever. And you're literally in a workplace with tens of thousands of people. Um, and you, you get paid from the time you enter the building until the time you leave. You're generally working the same number of hours each week. That, that was the dominant model. That is no longer the case. Instead, we now have what one of Sharon's former colleagues, David Weil, calls the fissured workplace. Think about a hotel. You have not tens of thousands of people, but you have a fair number of people who come to work in that hotel every day. There is a name. There's a really, you know, well-known, as well-known as, as GM. Maybe it's Hyatt, Marriott, whatever, above the door. But the reality is the people on the other side of that door do not work for that company, that name above the door, right? Very, very few of them, actually. In fact, maybe only the name has been licensed and nobody actually works for that company. So they work for um, a subcontractor who does, who provides housekeeping services. And another group, three or four of them, work for a landscaping company. And another few work for a temp agency that provides the front desk service. Um, they work different hours and different shifts. And some of them, those, those landscapers, might not actually be employees of anybody. They very well may be independent contractors. Now, there's a big question as to whether they should be independent, con you know, should be treated as independent contractors or not. Um, so you've got this much more complex sort of attenuated relationship between workers and their employers in, in many, many parts of the economy. And that's just changed how work works for people. Although our four guests raised different issues in their answer to our first question, it's clear that the economy has changed significantly since the NLRA passed over 80 years ago. Sharon shared with us that those changes did not occur in a vacuum, but in fact developed in response to gaps in the legal regime. Those changes did not happen necessarily organically or naturally. It is, a, to some extent, it is also a function of companies creating business models in order to fit what they see as um, the, the interstices in the law um, and to take advantage of that. Oren similarly noted that employers have shifted employment structures away from the dominant model of most of the 20th century in an effort to avoid the obligations that the law requires. Well, I think what happens when you have uh, burdens on the employment relationship is that employers are going to look for ways to avoid it. And in fact, if you look, I believe for the period 2005 to 2015, uh, the entire growth in, in absolute employment levels in the country was non-standard, non-full-time work. That is a natural reaction. Unfortunately, it's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Um, in theory, with those kinds of protections, with the presence of unions, what we are trying to do is establish good, healthy, stable employment relationships. But what we're seeing is that the government's capacity to impose that on a private sector that's trying to operate efficiently is actually very limited. 
Both Sharon's and Oren's accounts reveal that existing labor and employment law is not working for employers, and by extension, not working for employees. In fact, labor unions, while making some gains in popularity in recent years, have decreased in membership to the point that private sector union density is lower now than it was when the NLRA was signed into law. That means that union membership is lower than it was before American workers had the right to engage in collective bargaining. Unions have also faced significant legal challenges over time. Within the next couple months, the Supreme Court will make a decision in the case Janus v. AFSCME, known simply as Janus, which challenges the money that public sector unions collect from non-members. Basically, Janus could decimate public sector unions because they would still be responsible for representing and negotiating on behalf of the workers in their unit, but only self-selecting members would pay union dues. Right now, public sector union membership is five times greater than private sector unions, but if the Supreme Court rules for Janus, that number will likely go way down. Needless to say, unions are not and cannot be as effective as they used to be, which suggests that labor law needs to be updated in a serious way. Our guests agreed. The first thing that has to be done is a fundamental overhaul of labor law governing the way workers have a voice at work, where how unions and collective bargaining functions. That law has been broken for so long. Modest efforts to reform it haven't worked. We need a fundamentally new structure for labor law to support new forms of worker organization. labor law is a project that essentially has to be done on the national level because any laws passed on the local or state level would be preempted by the existing federal labor law regime. That being said, there are a few areas of employment where local and state governments can play a role. Tom listed a number of them for us. We're beginning to see some uh, innovation in uh, labor policies at the state and local levels. Increases in the minimum wage, uh, the fight for 15 has pushed uh, many states, the majority of states, to increase their minimum above where the federal is. We've seen sick leave uh, legislation, paid family leave, much more emphasis on uh, trying to integrate work and family responsibilities in flexible kinds of ways. Even community benefit agreements where uh, as a condition of investing uh, and getting contracts in local government affairs, uh, corporations and investors have had to meet certain standards. Those are all steps in the right direction, and let's hope that they are models for where we go at the federal level. Sharon also expressed excitement about the way that local and state governments can help us prepare for changes on the federal level when the time is right. I am a big believer in this time um, when it isn't possible to move um, a progressive agenda at the federal level to take advantage of those opportunities to really learn um, at the state and local level where those opportunities exist. One of the ways that we can learn from efforts at the local and state level is by studying and analyzing the effects of new policies and collecting evidence that could help bring similar changes at the national level. Sharon shared an example with us during our conversation. Two wonderful academics, uh, Susan Lambert and Joan Williams, who have been studying scheduling practices at The Gap for a number of years. And they just published the results of their study that show that predictable scheduling, fair and predictable scheduling actually has, I think they use the word dramatic. I have the, I have the study somewhere on my desk. 
dramatically improves productivity and profits. And so we're starting to see, you know, Oregon was the first state to adopt a fair scheduling laws. There are cities that have adopted it. We're now going to have, so this study is really important because they looked at what GAP did this voluntarily as part of this study. But we're now actually going to have a lot more evidence because we're going to see how it actually works in Oregon and San Francisco and New York and places that are adopting these, um, this sort of next generation of labor standards. One of the most prominent models of change on the local level is the fight to increase the minimum wage. The success of that movement has generated a lot of evidence of the kind that Sharon mentioned, and it's also created space for other proposals that would increase wages. Oren talked to us about the way that he would prefer to see wages go up. You know, a much better approach if we want to see higher wages for those people um, is to subsidize their wages is to say literally, you know, if you are uh, in a $9 an hour job and we wish that were $13 an hour, uh, we can't just order somebody to pay you $13 an hour instead. That's not going to work in the long term. Um, but we can put an extra $4 an hour in your paycheck. Uh, we, we do something like that, actually, through what's called the Earned Income Tax Credit, uh, which is a program that, that gives large refunds to some low-income households after the fact, at tax time. Um, but that's not really a good way to help uh, low-income households in particular. It would be much more effective to say, if we have a societal commitment to uh, raising the wages of low-income workers above what the market will pay them, um, that's fine, but, but we need to be prepared to step into, step into that process and fill that gap. Another major policy proposal that we're seeing on the local level is the idea of a universal basic income, often referred to as UBI. There are a number of high-profile supporters of this idea, which is to give everyone a basic livable income, regardless of whether they're working or not. Silicon Valley CEOs like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg have touted UBI's benefits. In fact, we're starting to see experiments at the local level that will give us more evidence on whether those benefits are real. For example, the city of Stockton, California, is running an experiment for its low-income residents to receive between $500 and $1,000 a month. Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton, has referred to UBI as a key component of the social contract, a means to make sure that everyone can take care of their basic needs. Of course, not everyone feels the same way about UBI as a proposal. Orrin shared some of his concerns with us, also referring to the social contract, in his case as the foundation of his criticism. The attention that's being given to universal basic income, I think, is is really troubling, especially from the perspective of the social contract, um, because when you when you get right down to it, it's it's essentially the rich proposing to pay everybody else to go away. Um, and and the reason I say that is because you know work and employment and doing something productive in society is is really a core part of life and and for most people a core part of life satisfaction and tied very closely to the health of their families and their communities and so forth. Um, so making sure that everyone can be a productive worker and contributor in society isn't optional. It's, it is core to the society functioning well. And under any definition of the social contract that's actually going to be widely applicable to people of all different abilities 
uh, and, and that's going to contribute to a, an inclusive society, you can't make work optional. Um, work has to be an important part of, of how we want our society to operate. Beyond policy proposals, one of the things that we're seeing in cities and states is partnerships with large companies in the hopes of bringing jobs to their communities. The most well-known example of this is the Amazon proposal. In September 2017, Amazon announced that it would build a new corporate headquarters that would employ 50,000 workers. The company requested bids from governments and economic development organizations across North America. 238 cities and regions submitted proposals, which included generous incentives for Amazon, primarily in the form of tax breaks. We spoke to Stephen Pedigo about this phenomenon, and he identified the core concern with this kind of competition from an economic development perspective. Now, with the Amazon proposal, which is a large number of jobs, it's 50,000 jobs, it is a large, significant capital investment. You know, you have cities and states putting significant dollars on the table. So, for instance, uh, my state here in New Jersey, I live in New Jersey, uh, we have uh, our governor, our former governor, um, is willing to put $7 billion on the table of taxpayer dollars for um, a company like Amazon to relocate into, into Newark. Um, Maryland is willing to put $5 billion. Kansas City, which didn't even get selected, was willing to put $4 billion on the table to attract these companies. And the question is, is that a good use of dollars? Is it a good use of dollars? Could we use those dollars to invest back in our local communities? In the case of Amazon and other companies like it, Stephen identified the need for a social compact that extends beyond employer and employee to company and community. This question of Amazon, right, is an interesting one because you've got tax, and and states are gonna put, um, it has become this incentive game. It has become the, a game of wanting to win the, this large sort of prize. And so you could have even imagine that incentive packages could continue to rise. The question is, is what do we expect for those incentives? If Amazon's gonna come into your community, if Amazon's gonna be a, a good corporate citizen, if we're gonna provide them with some dollars, what should we expect from them? What should we expect for uh, them in terms of helping us deal with our affordability and infrastructure issues? What do we think with them in, in terms of helping us upgrade and build better capacity around maybe even technology-based jobs or businesses or helping us think about public space? There has to be, and I hope, um, some type of compact that comes out, agreement that comes out of this, that has some type of expectation for Amazon if they're sort of to, 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 to get these dollars. If not, I'm afraid that the Amazon RFP package and incentives package will completely change the ballgame. Tom had a similar perspective on Amazon, noting that there are benefits on both sides that will be better felt in the long term if communities and companies both focus on supporting the community. So what we need to do is to to set some standards for companies coming into communities. And yes, we should support them, but let's support them in ways that work not only for the business, but for the community and for the labor force. Let's support them by saying, we will work with you to develop the training programs and the educational programs with our institutions or with new ones, with our community colleges, our technical schools, our universities. We'll help to rebuild the infrastructure, and we're willing to invest in making sure that the infrastructure, whether it's roads, internet service, 
airports or, or other transportation um, uh, systems or housing developments uh, all support what you need in the community and what you're looking for, but also help to build the local economy and society. If we did that, then there's a then we all win, and we increase the standards. And in fact, that's what companies want. They want a really good, talented labor force. They want a, a very attractive place to live. They want great schools for their kids, and they want to be in a place where the infrastructure supports their their business and allows people to get to work and get home. If we use those criteria, then you could compete across cities and you would have all cities trying to move up rather than to subsidize. All of the conversations that we had expressed both frustrations and hope. What rang clear to me was the fact that there's a lot of energy on the local level, but some kind of national effort is going to be crucial for any lasting labor reform. Unfortunately, our guests didn't think that the federal government is quite ready to tackle legislation in this space just yet. It's in part not working because our political system isn't working. I had the good fortune to work for Senator Kennedy. Um, it is unbelievable to me that he actually floor managed the last bill to raise the minimum wage. He has been gone for almost nine years. Um, so the, the fact that we have lost that common will to keep the minimum wage, a wage that will actually allow you to sustain a family um, in this country, and have let it sit at 7.25 an hour for all this time is just, to me, um, I, I don't know how you could have more powerful evidence that there is something very profound about our political system that's not working. You know, the minimum wage was never a partisan issue. I think every president except Gerald Ford signed a bill to raise the minimum wage since we had a minimum wage. Our hope is that having conversations like this one can re-spark the sense of purpose that got us those minimum wage bills and got us the NLRA. While none of these laws are sufficient for the economy that we're living in, they represent moments when government, industry, and workers were able to build consensus and move forward together with some kind of social contract. And in fact, they potentially had consequences that reached far beyond the labor context. In 1937, just after the Supreme Court upheld the NLRA as constitutional, Senator Wagner, the statute's author, gave an interview in the New York Times Magazine. In it, he said, quote, Fascism begins in industry, not in government. The seeds of communism are sown in industry, not in government. But let men know the dignity of freedom and self-expression in their daily lives, and they will never bow to tyranny in any quarter of their national life. End quote. For Sharon, that quote has particular resonance in this moment. But he talked about how one of the really important um, contributions of the labor movement and having a protected right to engage in collective bargaining provided for the country was this experience of democracy. And I think the things that he said are even more true now than they probably were then, that for many people, the political system feels felt very removed. Um, if you weren't a Washington power player and you couldn't see the direct connection between what happened in DC and what happened in your life, 
and that, that that's a problem for democracy because you need to have people feel invested in it. He made the observation that for people who are represented by a union, that's a very immediate form of democracy. They actually go and vote and they see the results of that vote in their lives in a very concrete way. Tom is currently teaching an online course on exactly this topic, reshaping the social contract for the future of work. We hope you'll take a moment to check it out and enroll if you're interested. The course is ongoing until May 18th, and you can still sign up. It's called Shaping the Future of Work, and you can find it on www.edx.org. We'll put the full link on our website. We have a very clear message in what I teach, and that is we all have to be involved. I'm really excited that we're uh, right in the midst of our online course on Shaping the Future of Work. This is our way of teaching uh, about what needs to be done to improve work for everybody, for workers and businesses and for society, and getting that word out to people all around the country, indeed all around the world. We have students from over 100 uh, countries represented in, in the class this year, and we use the class to explore how to compete on high road strategies, how to, to create good companies with good jobs. And then the capstone exercise is one where we build a new social contract. We would love to hear your thoughts on how to redefine the social contract in the context of work. As always, we've included some sources on our website if you're interested in reading more about this issue or learning more about our guests. And please stay tuned for our next episode on May 9th, in which we'll explore the concept of housing. Thanks to our producer, Marie Valindo, and to Annie Swanson-Nystrom for our artwork. The music you heard on this podcast is Lullaby for Democracy and Go Tell It on the Molehill by Dr. Turtle. We hope you'll check us out at breachedpodcast.org, follow us on Twitter at Breached Podcast, and subscribe to Breached on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback or ideas that you'd like to share with us, feel free to send us an email at breachedpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message at 617-528-0708. And if you like what you've heard so far, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate the feedback we've received so far. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm Jyoti Das Rosaria, and this is Breached.